Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be discussing the bond reduction given to Adam Coy that allowed him to be released on bond in his murder case in Columbus, Ohio. We're going to be taking a deeper look, as we mentioned last week, about Denver's successful support team assistance response program, which was born out of the defund the police movement. And we're going to be taking a look at the case of the murder of Kwawan Bobby Charles last November in Louisiana. In segment two, as promised, we'll be looking at your rights in a workplace or administrative investigation into sexual misconduct allegations. Make sure that you don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or Spotify, and follow our social media channels. Look to the lawofficeofbriangjones.com for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. So Erica, did you see in the news this week, former Columbus Police Department officer Adam Coy was given a bond reduction from three to $1 million and made bond later that day. I'm just shocked. I mean, how did he get into court so quickly? And did this have to do with just him getting an unfair advantage from being an ex-cop? Well, I don't know that he got an unfair advantage for being an ex-cop. Um, you know, his original bond of $3 million is, is pretty part and parcel to murder charges in central Ohio. Um, the $1 million bond is a little bit low on the low side, but again, um, you know, he's got a lot of the factors under the, the bond criminal rule, criminal rule 46, that would, would kind of lend to him getting that amount of bond. I was not, I was pretty surprised when he got the $3 million bond. I'm not surprised at a million dollar bond. But the interesting thing here, Erica, is that a defendant can file that motion for a bond reduction at any point in the entire criminal process. And it's really important to, to, to do that because being out on bond is, is so critical. Um, criminal Rule 46 specifies the, the factors that the court has to consider. And when you file a Criminal Rule 46 motion for a bond reduction or you file a bond reduction motion, the court can either rule on that, like deny it outright, or the court can schedule what's called an evidentiary hearing or you know, a, a time when witnesses come in and the, the attorneys can present documents and witnesses and testimony about what the appropriate bond in a particular case is. Now, in this particular situation, um, the hearing was requested, but it looks from the docket like no hearing was ever held, that the judge just ruled based on the pleadings and Mr. Coy was able to post that bond after it was reduced from three to $1 million. Now, having that bond hearing is really important because you can create a record um, by presenting physical evidence as well as oral argument and testimonial evidence. So um, the fact that his attorney filed this is the right thing to do from a defense perspective, and it looks like he's, he's going to be out for the duration of his case. Wow. I mean, that is absolutely amazing so he's going to be taking it easy while he's waiting for a judgment so why was the bond lowered in his case franklin county common pleas court judge 
Stephen McIntosh heard arguments from uh, Mr. Coy's attorney that included references. He, he's been primarily basing his bond arguments on uh, similar cases and similar defendants. What he's talking about is other police officers who've been charged with murder in other states. Uh, there are very few precedential cases, you know, other similar examples of situations where a police officer has been charged with murder in the state of Ohio. So there's really not a lot of, of uh, similar situations to compare, but he's really basing his arguments on other bonds that other police officers have gotten in other states. You, you'll recall from prior discussions, Erica, that, that the accused person has an Eighth Amendment United States constitutionally protected right to have a reasonable bond imposed. And that bond can't be excessive for the nature and circumstances of the charge, uh, the protection of the public, and to ensure that the person appears in court for all of their hearings. Now, the Ohio Supreme Court, and we talked about this several, uh, several weeks ago, uh, maybe even back in 2020, the, the before times, Muhammad um, versus Eckleberry was decided by the Ohio Supreme Court. And we're going to take a look at that case in the future. We're going to do a deep dive on that case in one of our future episodes. But what's important to take away from that is the court has to determine if a defendant is bailable or not bailable. In other words, should this person be required to stay in jail throughout the entirety of their case, or should they be allowed the opportunity to get out? And if the answer is yes, they should be allowed the opportunity to get out. This isn't such, this isn't a death penalty case. Um, this is, in, in this particular case, a life without the possibility of parole, potentially, um, case, then bond is required. And if bond is required, then the bond has to be set to reasonably assure the accused person's appearance in court ensure public safety and protect the integrity of the criminal justice process. So these high bonds that have been set over and over again for decades and decades designed to keep people in jail and pressure them to, uh, you know, to enter plea deals just to either, you know, get out of jail or, you know, get out of county jail and into the prison system, which is a little bit more comfortable than the county jail. Um, you know, those are going the way of the dinosaur, we hope. Um, it's inappropriate. It's, it's an unconstitutional practice. And we like to see attorneys out there using these arguments um, you know, to, to set this precedent, to make things better for all accused persons. Um, I think that that's very interesting. And I'm just curious if this changes his case in any way, him being out of custody versus him being in custody. Is it going to take a longer or a shorter time? Does it cost more? I mean, what do you think? Well, the, ch the timing of the case is going to change a little bit. So a, a, the case where a defendant is held in custody, either without bond or under a bond that they can't make, that in custody defendant's case takes priority over those defendants who are out of custody. And they get credit three to one on their speedy trial time. So in Ohio, all felony cases have to go to trial within 270 days of being uh, arraigned. So uh, of, or rather of charges, three, 270 days of the day that charges are issued. And that's really the service of the indictment on the criminal defendant. So the clock starts running and there can be tolling events. You ask the defendant asks for a continuance that pauses that, pauses that stopwatch. Um, when a person is in custody, they get three to one. So it, it, 
ostensibly shortens that 270 days down to 90 days. So what Adam Coy's case is going to do now is that that time period is going to expand back up to 270 days. And of course, that can be extended for a variety of reasons and, and frequently is in, in situations like this. You know, among in-custody defendants, the defendant whose case has been pending for the longest amount of time, of course, gets to go first. So again, we're, we're talking about extending the time period between now and when he ultimately has to face trial of this. Last but certainly not least, release from custody is a huge win for the defense in any case. And in particular, in this case, with Mr. Coy being a former police officer, I'm sure his time in jail has been unpleasant at best and, and possibly dangerous for him um, in light of his you know, alleged actions and his status as a police officer. Um, but in all cases, being out of jail is critical to the preparation of the defense case, as well as being in a better position to maintain the defendant's physical and mental health, which are critical to withstanding the stress of not only trial itself, but the preparation process leading up to a trial. So, you know, is this going to change how Adam Coy's case goes? Absolutely. Um, this is a huge benefit to Adam Coy. I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, if he's out on the street, then he obviously, it just, I guess it just makes it look like he's a lot less dangerous. If he was really thought of as a danger, they would definitely never let him out. I mean, so I guess it does go toward his case in a positive light. I mean, do you see that often as an indicator of how the case is going to end up? Well, the ultimate resolution of the case is very much up in the air at this point. But I will say this, for my clients who are able to make bond, either because we were able to get a bond reduction to you know, a signature or a personal recognizance bond, just a promise to show up to court later, or we're able to financially afford bond and then use that time out of custody to their advantage by you know, doing mitigation work, um, addressing the concerns that led to the charges in the first place. They have a significantly higher rate, um, again, in my anecdotal experience, significantly higher rate of avoiding prison. Either that's through a plea bargain and then sentencing arguments or not guilty verdicts um, that on the cases that go to trial. So you know, we're going we're gonna to keep a close eye on this case, uh, geographically very close to our home here um, in central Ohio and a nationwide very popular case in the area of criminal, uh, the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you also see in the news this week the article about Denver Star Program that I, uh, I mentioned briefly in our show last week? Uh, the statistics on its six-month report were released and demonstrate incredible success at saving lives. I mean, this is, it sounds like everything that we've been hoping for. We've, we've spoken about how really having medical professionals, mental health professionals help out in a situation where somebody is having a mental health crisis instead of having police officers go and try to wear so many hats and it's impossible for anyone to do that well. 
So can you tell us a little bit about who makes up the STAR team? What kind of professionals? It's a cross-section of private and public mental health and substance abuse organizations, including uh, Caring for Denver Foundation, which is a private organization, and Mental Health Center of Denver, which is a public organization. There are some law enforcement organizations involved, including the Denver Police Department and Denver 911, and then healthcare organizations, including Denver Health Paramedic Division and some private, heart, pro, private hospital partnerships. You know, I think this is a, a great example and, and one that I have lived. You know, 15 years ago when I started this law office, it was me, a printer scanner, and, and my laptop. And I was wearing all of the hats. Um, you know, everything from paralegal to lawyer to marketing person to phone person, you know, I, I did it all. And then I started adding employees as, you know, we, we started to expand our caseload and started to provide broader based uh, representation. And as I did that, Erica, what I found was uh, when I was less experienced as a, as a businessman, I would ask of my employees to wear the variety of hats that I used to wear. And it was always a failure over and over again, um, asking people to wear hats that they're not designed to wear is a failure. And asking our police officers to wear these mental health advocacy hats, to wear healthcare hats, to wear um, you know, drug and addiction counseling hats is the wrong thing to do. So I'm really proud of Denver for identifying you know, what, what we have identified here in the office, we call uh, stay in your lane. You know, making sure that people have very clearly defined roles and keeping them in those roles so that they can excel and be the best at their job. I mean, I think that that makes so much sense. It's just like when people try to multitask, they don't do anything well. <laughs> like nothing gets done. So yeah, there's I mean, a thing as multitasking. It's just task switching. Right. And studies will show that you take your focus off of one thing. It takes you 15 minutes to get back into focus on that activity. I mean, can you imagine now these guys are trying to switch back and forth? It's very hard to make the right decisions. And we've seen some incredibly terrible outcomes, deadly outcomes as a result of these police officers trying to wear too many hats. So let's talk about the positives. Like what are some of the successes that you've seen in the past six months as a result of this team being put together? So the STAR program group responded to seven different types of 911 calls. Uh, assist, intoxicated person, suicidal series, uh, welfare checks, indecent exposure, trespass for unwanted person, and syringe disposal. Now that means that instead of law enforcement responding to these calls, the STAR team was deployed to the, the location, to the scene. Now of 748 calls that they responded to during those six months, nobody was arrested and the Denver police was never once had to call, be called for backup. Nobody died, nobody was arrested, nobody was violently injured. 213 of those calls, the STAR team responded to a report of a suspicious person in the area. Now, statistically, these suspicious person calls are shown to target homeless people and people of color. 
Nobody went to jail for these incidents. 145 times, they responded to a call where somebody was needed or in need of a qualified and empathetic person to check in on a loved one. 94 times, they responded to somebody who needed their assistance in the home, whether that was related to a, a mental or physical health issue. 48 times, they responded to calls of people who were considering suicide. And all 48 times, those individuals did not commit suicide. The program only operated from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday, but given its success, my hope is that the program will be funded 24-7, 365, and expanded to every major city in America, and then hopefully from there to our rural jurisdictions. This is a model that works. This is a model that saves lives, and maybe most, most importantly for many people, this is a model that saves taxpayer dollars. I mean, I think it's absolutely amazing. And I'm, I'm so thrilled for all of those successes and all of the individuals that were helped because of the new team put together. So, I mean, with any new venture, there's, like you said, this is a model that others, other metropolitan areas can follow. What are some of the key critical pieces of the program that you think other metropolitan areas can learn from? Three, two, one. So you're right, Erica. STAR started in a, in a test phase, in a, in a testing position. And that includes what types of calls they're going to respond to. In order to work out the kinks and issues, they developed a system with the goal of it being scalable, you know, expandable. Um, defunding the police and refunding mental health services in this situation did not lead to an increase in death. And in fact, many lives were saved. We're talking about 48 people who were on the brink of suicide who, are, who did not commit suicide on that day. And let's hope that all 48 of those individuals are getting the help that they, they so desperately need and are going down a better path in life. Now, what we see is that many of these people were kept out of the cycle of incarceration, poverty, incarceration, poverty, over and over and over again, um, because they were never arrested. You know these uh, these trespass allegations, these uh, you know these persons in the suspicious person in the neighborhood that can so frequently lead to somebody getting shot, somebody getting arrested for um, you know a, a loitering charge or a minor possession of marijuana charge although not in denver because marijuana is legal in denver um, you know these these very minor infractions that then lead to fines that then the fines aren't paid because they can't be afforded to be paid so those lead to warrants which leads to an arrest which leads to a new charge for some other minor infraction and then the cycle just goes over and over again and people spiral down these black holes what we found in denver is that that spiral doesn't have to happen. The multi-organizational approach to this was absolutely critical because every aspect of each response has to be adjusted. 911 needs new ways to uh, route these calls and paramedics really need new protocols and to be launched on a new, new response strategy overall so that they're not relying heavily on police, but now relying on you know, organizations like the STAR program. 
you know, employees of, of businesses and really people all over the community need to be trained on what the STAR program is and how it can be used through public service announcements and public forums on how to operate within the service and make use of the service. You know, these are the next steps that Denver is going to go through, and hopefully that can be trans transferred into other areas, you know, tweaked and, and, and molded and, and improved so that this program doesn't die on the vine. I think that's really important, too. I'm so glad that you're thinking ahead. We're getting this information out so that, you know, we can be sure that something as successful as this even in its beginning phases, will live on to help millions of people, hopefully, once it's spread out like we've, we've talked about today. Absolutely, Erica. And, you know, one of the great things about having these sort of multidisciplinary teams is that they take um, a multicultural approach because you're bringing in people from different areas. You're not just having law enforcement officers look at um, everything that's going on in the community. And I think that was one of the major things that led to our third major story today. And I'm wondering if you saw this in the news, Erica, the break in the investigation of the murder of Kwawan Bobby Charles, uh, the black teen who was found in the sugarcane field back in November. If you wouldn't mind telling me what happened, I would really appreciate it. And, and I'm sure there are some people out there that would love to hear the story as well before we really do a deep dive. Absolutely, Erica. So Bobby Charles was a 15 year old who was allegedly picked up outside his father's home on October 30th, 2020 by two people, Janet Irving and her son. Now, Bobby didn't have permission to leave and his father wasn't aware that he was being picked up by anybody. Local law enforcement claims that they never received a missing persons notification until November 3rd of last year. But the Charles family reports that their initial attempts at reporting Bobby missing were rebuffed by the police. And the police said, well, he's probably just at a, a football game and they refused to open a, an investigation. And the family claims racial bias is the reason the police refused to conduct a, a proper investigation. And Bobby was not subject to an Amber Alert, despite video evidence uh, from the family surveillance cameras of him being removed from the home by a vehicle driven by strangers. Now, Bobby's body was found the evening of November 3rd, 2020, in a drainage ditch about 30 minutes from his home. The coroner's report found that the cause of death was drowning, but it never made a determination as to the manner of death. So cause of death is the, is the actual thing that caused, you know, caused death, cause of death. Manner of death is accident, natural causes, suicide, homicide, or undetermined. So at this point, uh, there's no determination as to his cause of death uh, from the coroner's office. I know that in a lot of your work for your clients, you conduct your own investigations. Why do you think the family hired their own investigator? Well, the family was very frustrated by the inaction of local law enforcement and what they perceived to be this racially biased investigation. So the family went out and hired an attorney and connected with Grassroots Legal, which is an organization associated with the civil rights activist, Sean King. 
fantastic follow on Twitter and Facebook, by the way, Sean King. Um, now, that organization centered on advocating for Black lives taken by police through uh, police on citizen homicides. Now, the investigator in this case is the one who broke open the investigation, the, the case rather. He identified the suspect vehicle, traced it to the woman and her son, and then went out and interviewed them, basically doing all of the police work for the police. And the recorded audio is shocking, Erica. Janet Irving admitted to using drugs with Bobby and admitted that she should have done something when he allegedly left her home of his own volition, but never returned. Her indifference to Bobby's death is honestly chilling. And though the police claim they never received the audio until after the media did, the family says that they gave the audio to the police and the police told them that they didn't want it. They stonewalled the family. And so only when, as an, as an effort of last resort, did they turn over this information to the media. I, that is absolutely depressing and disheartening. And I, you would, one would hope that we could put an end to this sort of thing so that you know, children can be safe. I mean, there's, there's no greater priority. And so you are awesome at coming up with checklists <laughs> during these interviews. And it's one of the things that I love about you and what you do. Um, do you have some sort of checklist that other families that are frustrated with the inactivity of the police investigating their cases can, can have and can use for their, to help their situations? Yeah, absolutely, Erica. So first and foremost, hire an attorney. An attorney is a fantastic liaison between the family and law enforcement, and if necessary, the family and the media. Um, that attorney should hire a private investigator and work with your attorney to, to find the right investigator for your family's needs. Make records and keep them. You know, audio recordings, video recordings, um, documentary evidence, keep that information, that objective proof. You know, you work with your attorney and your private investigator to collect the surveillance footage, receipts, bank records. Um, you know, if you can log in to the, the person's cell phone, get their GPS data, any digital evidence or physical evidence, you want to preserve all of that, especially if law enforcement doesn't have any interest in the case. Now, at some point, either the police are going to do their job properly and investigate the case, or you're going to have to take the case to the media. So that's a discussion that you need to have with your attorney and with your private investigator to figure out when and if that's the appropriate step. And last but certainly not least, consider reaching out to organizations like Grassroots Legal or Lambda Legal um, uh, and other legal defense funds for connections to advocates that, that help people based on uh, disadvantaged identity groups that's really great advice and I, I thank you for it and there's a checklist up here uh, from the information you're giving and hopefully this really helps our audience today. Well thank you Erica. Now not every allegation of sexual misconduct will result in or is associated with a criminal case. Many allegations begin in a school, a workplace, or an organizational setting 
and they may or may not ultimately be reported to the police for criminal charges. However, an accused person still has rights that can be exercised in these settings, and it's critically important that you do so. Today, we're going to talk about representation in segment two. We're gonna be talking about representation in these administrative non-criminal settings. Brian, I feel like we've touched on this before in some of the current events in one of our earlier episodes. And if I remember correctly, it can be very tricky because the rules are different in an educational setting than they are in the real world. And so what kind of rights does an accused person have in an educational setting like a high school, a college, or in sports? So you're absolutely right, Erica. The rules are different in an educational setting, um, whether that is college has one set of rules, um, high schools have a different set of rules, athletes have a different set of rules that apply to them, and then the workplace can have an entirely different set of rules, um, whether that is a workplace for people that are that are working under a, an employer handbook or people that have a union contract. So there's, there's a lot of variables that go into this. And what I wanna to do today, Erica, is kind of take a broad brush to this. And you know, first and foremost, we're gonna talk about schools. So university settings, whether we're talking about a student, a faculty member, or an athlete, they're subject to Title IX regulations and procedures you know, under the federal Title IX code. And that includes due process rights. So they have a right to have a, a variety of information. Now, high school settings, whether student, faculty, or athlete are subject to due process rights as well, but those are typically outlined in a student handbook or a faculty handbook that outline the grievance and misconduct procedures. Now, the handbook has to outline the complaint, the notice, investigation, hearing, and appeal procedures for the ed educational institution. And that typically applies both at the high school and the college level. Although Title IX sets forth a, a foundational requirement for those universities to meet, when we're talking about these sorts of um, allegations and investigations, a student handbook or a faculty code of conduct can give additional rights over and above the requirements of Title IX. Now, if you find yourself in these sorts of situations, you've got to hire an attorney immediately because the procedures that are outlined in that handbook, the dangers and exposures to criminal liability and the context of a volatile and acrimonious situation provide uh, the, the absolute worst melting pot where the use of advocacy and, and detached representation help protect you from uh, making mistakes, failing to meet the minimum requirements of, of those handbooks and procedurally defaulting your defenses away, handing your defenses away without ever having the opportunity to use them in, in the administrative hearing in the quote unquote court setting. And of course, you know, protecting you from the verbal assault um, and the emotional attacks that come with being accused of these sorts of uh, these these sorts of misconduct situations. Now, working with an attorney at the outset of the investigation, it'll prepare you for a potential appeal. And by collecting all the necessary evidence and preparing 
your presentation of information to whoever the finder of fact is, be it administrative board or some other decision maker, will make sure that you're putting forth the best argument to preserve both the factual defenses that you're raising and the procedural defenses that you want to raise during this process. Now that same preparation, that same work that you're gonna be doing with your attorney, it can be used for the hearing itself and it can be used to support a civil case for defamation in university situations, violations of your Title IX rights, interference with contractual relationships or a variety of other civil remedies once you have been vindicated. You know, hiring an attorney isn't cheap, but if you're vindicated through the process, if you're found not responsible, then you can go after your accuser and hold them responsible for the costs and damages that they have wrought in your life. And of course, at all times, the attorney guarantees that the accused person's rights are protected, both in this administrative context and in that potential criminal context. I mean, that sounds about right. <laughs> I mean, you really have to protect yourself in those situations, especially when the rules are all different and all these different universities and, and schools. It's just, uh, it, it's something that if you are not an attorney yourself, and if you are not an attorney that is well-versed in this type of law, then you, know, you should absolutely get the help of another attorney. So if we're looking at sexual harassment cases, accusations that happen in the workplace, like how, what are the rights of employees versus contractors versus vendors? So employee rights are typically covered by the employee handbook and will include things like investigation and response procedures. In some situations, it's covered by employment contracts or collective bargaining agreements if the workplace is unionized. And there are also situations where um, an, an employee handbook or a contract can detail what grievance procedures are. Uh, what the process is that's required to be followed by the accuser, by the employer, and by the respondent. Um, contractors are generally not subject to the terms of the employee handbook, so the policies and procedures might be covered by a separate or, you know, a separate contractual agreement or some sort of workplace policy. However, contractors are rarely afforded the same sorts of protections and due process rights as full employees. This is why, you know, one of a variety of reasons why the rights of, you know, people in situations like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash, um, they don't get these sorts of protections uh, because they're, they're, con they're contractors, they're not employees. Now, vendors don't get any protection other than the vendor contract. And if the contract doesn't outline a grievance procedure, then the likely outcome is, is going to have to be like a breach of contract case in civil litigation. In these sorts of situations, an attorney can assist an accused person in the workplace setting by making sure that the accused person understands what type of employee they are, you know, which of these categories they fall under, what procedures and policies apply to them, and how to prepare that defense that limits potential criminal or civil liability, including what evidence to collect, preserve, and how to present it without running afoul of company policy. You know, preserving your job 
is a consideration here. You know, we, we obviously, a first place consideration is making sure you stay out of jail. A second place consideration is, you know, is trying to make sure that you get to keep your job in this. So, you know, a typical accusation in this setting is sexual harassment. And some companies outline when harassment claims are supposed to be referred to the police and others simply say that sexual harassment is grounds for immediate termination. Now in that, in the event that termination is likely, an attorney can help the accused plan an exit strategy and preserve their employment prospects and you know, make sure that harmful exposure is limited as much as possible. Negotiate severance agreements, negotiate the terms of either a termination or a voluntary separation letter. You know, all of these things can be, um, you know, can be negotiated in the right circumstances with the right preparation. I mean, I think that's all very helpful information, especially for companies out there that want to protect themselves. And, um, you know, there's so many different situations that can come up when you have employees and contractors and vendors. So, this is all really good information to have. Um, another thing that you like, you always see in the news situations with sexual misconduct and in the religious communities, or sometimes you hear about things in the boy or girl scouts or youth sports, other types of organizations. What kind of rights does an accused person have in those types of situations? So again, we're gonna be talking about an individualized determination. And typically we're talking about that determination being based off of a handbook or maybe some guideline pamphlet that volunteers have been provided. Often these organizations require the volunteer to sign that agreement as a condition of participation. So that's gonna govern the, the policies and the procedures as, as far as how the process works. Accusations of sexual misconduct will be subject to uh, these policy guidelines, and an attorney is essential in these settings just as much as they are in the settings of the educational and the employment settings, because the allegations can result in loss of position, loss of, rep rep loss of reputation, um, criminal referrals, and, and of course, media attention. Coaches, priests... Boy Scout leaders, they're all mandatory reporters under the state of Ohio laws. And under their organizational structures, um, those entities are required to report suspected abuse to law enforcement. Um, so evidence collection and preservation are urgent in these matters, especially to these organizations, because they typically have a fire first, ask questions later mentality, which means you as the accused will be locked out of and prevented from accessing the very information that could vindicate you down the road. Any allegation regarding misconduct with a minor child should absolutely be treated as a criminal accusation at the outset and result in the accused immediately invoking their right to remain silent and advising the questioner that they want to talk to an attorney. I think that's amazing advice. And I just, I guess with all of this information, I'm curious as to whether there is a bright line rule for whether an accused could participate in the investigation themselves. 
You know, there really isn't. Any person who's accused should really consult with an experienced sexual assault criminal defense attorney um, to explore what their rights are, what their exposure is, and the possibilities to mitigate and protect reputation as soon as they've learned that they've been accused. It doesn't matter what the type of accusation is. Treat any accusation of sexual misconduct as if, it's, as if it has the power to take your entire life away because oftentimes it does. Well, I mean, and I think that that's synonymous with what we usually talk about where so often people just shrug off an accusation as if it's not too big of a deal. And then maybe it's not the, the accusation that threw them in jail or had them lose their job now, but then something else might happen. And then all of a sudden the problem is compounded and often the punishments are exponentially terrible. I mean, people lose their families, they lose their jobs, they lose their respect in the community, which is a really big deal. Every day we come across the tragic circumstances of people that waited days or weeks to come and consult with us because at the outset they thought, well, this is just somebody saying things about me. That can't possibly result in consequences because there's no evidence. And what I have to tell every single one of those people is, is that there are literally tens of thousands of individuals in prison right now for years, decades, and some even the rest of their lives based on an allegation that has no supporting physical evidence. So yes, when somebody makes an accusation, that is evidence. Their testimony is evidence. And it is enough evidence without the proper defense to put you in prison for the rest of your life. Those are very wise words. And I think one of the scariest quotes from you I've ever heard. So I'm very, very glad that you are here giving people this advice and, you know, really a checklist of, of what to look out for and what the, what they should do in some of these situations. Well, thank you. I appreciate those kind words, Erica. And, and thank you for joining me in this discussion today. And to everybody else, I also want to say thank you for listening to our podcast. And I hope you subscribe and share this information with your friends. To learn about the latest updates to the hottest stories in civil rights, to make sure that you're aware of police and government accountability issues, and to stay on top of the criminal injustice system, check out the law office of brianjones.com. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense and on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram at T-L-O-B-J. We'll be back next week with a sui generous perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and criminal injustice system news, as well as a discussion of dealing with a conviction for a sex offense, including the possibility of getting out from under the sex offender registration requirements. Now, Erica, when I parted ways with my grandfather as a young boy, he would always say, hey kid, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And to that, to my friends, when we part ways, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended.